0: The first Bible reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and that can be found on page 3 of the Black Church Bibles, and also on the screen to my left. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The second Bible reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, page 4 in those uh, church Bibles. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. and they felt no shame.
1: Today we're going to wrestle with the whole question of uh, marriage and gender issues, and in a sense I don't need to introduce that debate to you, you're all familiar with it. Last year we had the the marriage plebiscite, and 61% of Australians voted in favour of extending our understanding of marriage uh, from not just being between a male and a female, but between two people. Right? And uh, we had that vote, over 61% came down in favour of that outcome. We know that this is part of a wider uh, debate in our society that's been raging for a number of years. You go back to the 1960s and there was a debate around uh, feminism and the issue of how men and women related and the question of uh, male patriarchy and abuse. That, I think, has morphed in a range of ways uh, so that in the 21st century, we're now in a situation where we're talking about uh, gender fluidity. Uh, the whole question of how I identify, whether as a male or a female, whether the biology of my birth dictates the way I identify as I push on, uh, that's led to questions about whether children should be uh, assigned a gender when they're born. That is, should we be saying, I've just had a baby girl or a baby boy, or should I be saying I've had a baby human being? And then in due course... The clarity coming as the child works out how they want to identify as they grow up. Uh, Questions about whether children under the age of 18 should have the capacity to have uh, surgery or hormone hormone therapy for gender reassignment is a real issue that is constantly being debated in our culture. Uh, And there are a range of other issues that flow into that, issues of transgenderism, um, gender dysphoria, and you'll be aware of a number of those issues that are floating around us. Before I jump into what the Bible says, what I'd like to do for a moment is just take a step back uh, from those debates and talk a little bit about uh, the changing culture that we live in, the changing worldview scenario that we find ourselves in, that in some ways is leading to these issues that we're currently debating So that's where I want to go uh, right now. It seems to me that uh, when it comes to um, debates we're having about sexuality, it is tied with a a worldview that's bleeding from something into something else. Let me try and illustrate it. Uh, Back in 2015, there was a lady called Rachel Dolezal who really hit the press in the United States. So Dolezal was a civil rights activist a uh, black African woman who talked about the way in which over the years she'd been persecuted and racially abused because of her origins. Uh, that was the, what was going on until her parents uh, gave a public press interview. They explained that they were white and that their heritage was totally European and that Dolezal was their daughter... Not adopted or anything like that, but their biological daughter, and that she had not a scrap of African-American heritage in her genetic makeup at all. Some of you may recall that, and the debate raged about the, the you know, how this could come to be that this woman who had no um, black African genetic makeup could possibly hold herself out in this way. Dolenzil herself gave an interview in November 2015. And what she explained in that interview was, yes, her parents were quite right. That is, she was born of white parents, European extraction. She agreed with that. However, she said that at a subjective level, she identified as a black person. That was her her own owned identity. And because she identified as a black person, therefore there was no problem to hold herself out, as a black person, okay? So that, that's what was going on. Now, what was interesting was there were some, you know, fairly loud critics on one side of that sort of decision, but a whole raft of people who supported uh, her in that statement. Now, I reckon 30 years ago, you could never have done that. And it just indicates the vast change in thinking that has gone on in our society, not just about that issue, but about almost every issue that we encounter I think that there are two issues that I want to identify uh, that I think feed into this sort of debate that we're entering into this morning. And they're the rise of individuality and the quest for authenticity. Rise of individuality, quest for authenticity. There's been a rise in individualism. That is, uh, we're a society that now rejects the notion of objective truth. Uh, I need to work out what is true for me. External authorities can't tell me who I am and how I should live, whether they be religious, government or family. I define my own reality. That's a powerful mantra that I think operates at every level of our culture today. Coupled to that, there's the quest for authenticity. We must be true to ourselves, uh, we shouldn't be conforming to moral codes that are out there. We've got to work out what's right for us. Because to conform to something external would be to undermine my true identity, my unique self. And personal meaning ultimately comes from within, not from outside. Now these these twin mantras, individualism and authenticity, it seems to me are like a a drumbeat in the background that forms the, the, you know, the water in which we swim as a culture, uh, to mix my metaphors. You know, that is, the, that's the reality of the world in which we live. Now contrast that with the essential Christian framework of thinking. Okay. If I suggest to a world that is uh, weaned on this individuality and authenticity, if I suggest that God has created the world, and because he is the creator, he has authority over all he has made, including the people he has made. Right? That is jarring for our world. If I suggest that God, in his vast goodness and power, has designed humanity, both in terms of gender and marriage, it will breed a reaction. If I say it's a given... If I suggest, as a follower of Jesus, that God has revealed himself most clearly and has provided objective realities about who we are in his world and a framework for understanding marriage and gender and that the problems we experience as we grapple with those issues are explained by the nature of how this world has unfolded, especially after Genesis 3 and the fall, then understand... Those things are very hard for your average person in our culture who is not a follower of Jesus to hear. Like it just jars and grates because it cuts across my individuality and my quest for authenticity. And therefore I think it's becoming progressively harder for believers because we, we swim in that ocean or views in this world, we're not immune from that way of thinking, and we're in relationships, at least I hope we are, with many people who hold those worldviews. And it's very hard to stand firm based on the convictions that we have as followers of Jesus in a world that is just eroding around the edges of those things. Right? It is actually tough being a believer in this world. Okay, that's a framework way of thinking. It intrudes on the whole area of our sexuality, gender identification, and marriage. I'll come back to those in just a moment. What I'm going to do for a few moments now is to talk about what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2 on marriage and gender. I then want to think through some of the hot topics uh, that I think are there. So, contrast the biblical view with the issues that we're grappling with, you'll see from the outline that I've given you that I've listed three of those, Uh, same-sex relationships, transgender, and gender fluidity. Um, I've worked out that actually uh, Jeff Lynn is going to come and preach on the issue of transgender uh, later uh, in the year, and therefore I'm not going to touch on that this morning. I'm not dodging it. But uh, I was aware that when I was preparing, I had about 20, 23 sermons, and I was trying just to pare it down. This is a convenient way. It's going to be covered later on. Uh, important topic, though, it is. Okay, So let's get into it. Um, as we come to uh, the scriptures on marriage, uh, the Bible has a lot to say about the nature of gender and marriage as we look at these opening chapters of the scripture. Um, we see that here in these chapters, God affirms the goodness of all that he has made. Remember back in chapter 1? Uh, it is good, 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 very good, right? And uh, especially the very good is attached to the nature of the way in which he has made humanity in his image, right? That is, that is emphasised. It's clear that God has made humanity, male and female, in a complementary manner. You come to Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God is the architect of gender. Uh, God creates that gender distinction. But I want you to note especially that equality is built in. That is, women are equally in the image of God as men. And let me say, in the ancient world... uh, Christianity is a a starkly different world religion. Women were just ignored in the ancient world. Women never got a mention in uh, the religious narratives of how we come to exist. They were just completely forgotten. But in God's economy of things, he creates male and female equally in his image. Now, it is very clear as you think about Uh, males and females in our world, that all the indications about gender vastly support, that is, biology, vastly support the fact that there is a created mandate here, male and female. Uh, There are some who are born intersex, that is, they have a combination of male and female genitalia uh, or body parts. Uh, That is less than 1% in our population, okay? But otherwise, it is clear biologically, uh, people are born male or female, that's born out. And what we have is distinctives uh, that are clear between the way in which God has created us, male and female. It is part of the creative design. And what we discover as we look through Genesis 1 and 2 is that that has purpose, uh, there, is a, there is a reasoning, a thinking uh, behind God's design at this point. The first is that he has made us, in his image, male and female, to rule in his world. And also, uh, he has made the possibility of marriage in a certain framework. In Genesis 1, what we've got is this, um, uh, this wide-angle lens on creation, It is very vast in its scope about humanity and rule, uh, that God has made us to be his subtenants in this world. Then when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we get this this up-close look at particularly humanity in the Garden of Eden and the nature of their relationship, and particularly when it comes to the marriage relationship. When we come to marriage here in Genesis 1 and 2... Here are some of the elements that you can pick up as you go through. Firstly, it's clear that in a marriage relationship, there's meant to be a deep union and bond. So verse 18 of chapter 2, notice it says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Um, Remember back in uh, chapter 1, good, 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 very good. Here we have the first not good. And the not good is the isolation of a male in God's created scheme of things. That is, it's good for there to be male and female. You come to verse 22, we're told that the Lord God made a woman from the man's rib. That is, the woman is like him, made of the same stuff. But unlike him, that is woman, not man, there's difference as well. When you get to verse 23, we're introduced into... um, The man celebrating the reality of God creating a woman uh, for companionship and for joint rule as we come to think about the world. Then we get to verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Their complementarity creates the possibility of males and females being in a profound union. Uh, that is, their sexual union adds to their joyful intimacy and framework and the design God has for human flourishing. Right? A unity in marriage that is meant to be one, whole, deep, profound, peaceful, harmonious. We also know that when we go through these chapters, included in this understanding of this marriage relationship is the idea of procreation. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, God instructs them to be fruitful and increase in number. Humanity, we are God's partners in caring for, tending, ruling over creation. And part of the extension of God's rule in this world Uh, Part of his creative good intention is to see the creation of new human beings. That's the reality. That's a good part of God's creation. New people in the image of God. And humanity is given this special capacity to be able to reproduce and recreate in this world. But can I say all of us in this room who've ever existed exist as a result of a union between a man and a woman. There's no other way that this can actually happen and fulfil God's purpose at this point. And then clearly as we look at marriage, permanence is intended. Uh, You get that one flesh idea uh, that we see in chapter 2, the idea of unity, and it's uh, reinforced by the teaching of the Scriptures as you go through the rest of the Bible, Uh, that idea of permanence in that relationship. Okay. Really brief, but let me summarise. When it comes to marriage, what we have are two people. In God's economy of things, the male and female. Uh, it is the context for the proper expression of sexual affection. It's permanent. That's the content of marriage at this point. And it is God's good design for human flourishing. While in this series we're not spending much time in Genesis chapter 3... I do want to now visit that chapter because I think we need to to understand why some of the problems occur in our world when it comes to the nature of marriage, harmony, peace, gender identity, all those sorts of things. We turn to uh, chapter 3 and we see there Adam and Eve, man and woman, rebelling against God, that is, rejecting his rule over them. Essentially, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 are people saying... The good God who has made a good world and made us to live under his authority to tend his world and relate to each other, we don't think he's got such a good idea. We think we can do a better job. So there's that, I talked about individuality, there's the quest for independence. I will live apart from you, God, and recreate identity and purpose and relationships in my world, in your world, as if it's my world. And we see the, the way in which that is outworked in the rest of the Bible. That is, sin, the rejection of God, manifests itself in a breakdown of relationship with God in the world and in our own relationships. And in particular, we see the way in which sin uh, disfigures or, or mars the way in which we live. We, we see it when it comes to our bodies, right? Um, Post-Genesis 3... Uh, we have bodies that get sick and decline. Right? I don't run as fast as when I was 20. Right? I used to be quite fit. I am not quite fit. Right? Uh, this has something to do with the fact that I am several decades older than what I was. I, I don't think my body's improving. I think it's going downhill. Who agrees with me? Right? It's. Uh, um, There's just around. we know that we know that sin affects our, our world and we decline. Uh, I mentioned previously the whole issue of. Uh, Intersex, those who are born with both male and female genitalia. I I think that is a result of the breakdown of our world. Uh, It's the same with um, disabilities of any sort, actually, that people struggle with in different ways. The fall affects our thinking, Uh, that is, it affects our psychology. As we live in a world where we're subject to uh, depression, anxiety, Most of us struggle for identity at different times and in different ways. And part of that, I think, extends the sense of sexual identity and how it is we're meant to live with the body that we've been given. Even if we have biological clarity about being male or female, we can have confusion when it comes to the right way in which we should express our gender and the way in which that operates. And then finally, I think sin affects us at the heart level, the level of our desires. We actually don't desire what God wants. We desire what what we want independently of God. So what does it mean for us to live in a created world that is good as people who are affected by sin and living in a world affected by sin. What does that look like? Good world, world that suffers because of sin. Now, at this point, I want to use an analogy that's not mine. Uh, It's by an author called John White. And John says he he thinks that uh, living in a world that sort of separated itself from God is a bit like uh, what happens to an art restorer. Okay, okay. So bear, bear with me here. I know nothing about art. My apology. It's his analogy. If I get it wrong, it's my fault. All right? So he says, it's like art restoration. A really good art, art restoration person knows that when they're given a painting by an old master, their job is to restore this masterpiece back to its original state as much as they possibly can. Okay, so if I'm asked to restore the Mona Lisa, right, I don't get it and go, "I think she'd look better with glasses." You know, um, th- this is not an option that is open to me. It would be a total defacing of the, the intention. White argues that as we live in a fallen world that is good, the task is to see how we might recover under God um, our Our intended identity, see, to be restored. We're masterpieces in God's creation that are marred by sin. How can we be restored back into what God intends us to be? And I think that that is a really helpful analogy as we think about some of the issues that we struggle with in this world, not just sexuality, uh, but really in every area. What is God, the, the, the creative master who loves us for relationship, what's his intention for us? And how do we move back towards that? Okay. Now, oh, is it that time? It might be time to pray and stop, right? Um, as we come to hot topics. Uh, all right. What I'm going to do is now... Take that biblical framework and interact across a couple of um, issues that I think are very contemporary so we can think through how does God's view of gender and marriage intersect in these contemporary debates. And I'll start with the the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Uh, We know that last year over 61% of people, they voted in favour of same-sex couples being able to be identified as married couples. Now, I don't know if you remember, but one of the slogans... I'll put it in the notes. One of the slogans that was endlessly repeated throughout that, that debate was this one. Why should we vote in favour of same-sex marriage? Because love is love. Okay. Now, I actually thought it didn't contribute all that much to the debate, but I do understand the thinking that underlies that. And, and let me say it is the world view that I mentioned earlier. That is, the argument of those who are in favour of same-sex marriage went something like this. Isn't it hateful and a product of misguided prejudice to stop two people who love each other, no matter what their gender, from entering into marriage? I love my same-sex partner. They love me. Why should I be prevented from marrying them? Why would you do that to me? Now, I think that actually most Christians I spoke to found this a really challenging argument to think about. Because, you know, if I did a survey here today and asked those of you who are followers of Jesus, how many of you think hate's appropriate, you know, as opposed to love? Well, not too many hands. I mean, we're, generally, as Christians, we're in favour of love. <laughs> Right, So love is love sort of rings a note. So we're trying to work our way through this as we think about followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you a couple of thoughts uh, on what the Bible says about marriage and on that particular issue. I think the problem with the love is love um, mantra is that it doesn't reflect a biblical understanding of marriage. And Christians were sucked into it because we don't have a biblical understanding of marriage. Okay. Theoretically, we might, but I don't think we do at the base level. Let me try and explain what I mean. Over the last, I think, 30 or 40 years, particularly with the rise of celluloid and Hollywood, um, I think the dominant view of marriage has been that marriage is all about romantic love. Okay. And that, if I feel a depth of romantic love for one another, that is the key to marriage. You know, so um, at the end of most Hollywood f- films that are based on you know um, uh, love and romance, if you 've got a couple looking lovingly into each other 's eyes, you know that they 're going to have a successful relationship because right? they 've ticked the key box you know we feel romantically affectionate towards each other. Understand how that fits the paradigm of our world, individuality, authenticity. It's based on who I feel love towards, and in order to be authentic, I must be able to execute a plan based on my feelings. Right? I feel love towards someone, irrespective of gender, therefore I must be able to marry them to be authentically true to myself. Now, I think many Christians have absorbed this view of romantic love as they think about what marriage is and therefore, uh, when we had this debate, it was very difficult to argue with. Can I say that biblical Christianity, Genesis 1 and 2, and as you see it worked out in, in the rest of the Bible, it has a very different view of marriage. Now, Hear me, especially men here right now, right? The Bible does have a romantically loving idea of what's involved in marriage, right? I'm not ruling out romance, all right? Just let me repeat that for the men here who are a little bit thick at points, right? Romance is still involved in marriage, all right? However, it is not the dominant uh, series of ideas that are attached to marriage in the Bible, Uh, Marriage we know is there for the joining in in marriage of males and females. Uh, That builds into it the best God-designed possibility for unity and depth of relationship and oneness. It also is the only means uh, by which people can reproduce. That is, I'm not saying same-sex couples can't have children by other means, but... Children are only created through males and females uh, being united, uh, either personally or in um, the laboratory, right? That is the basis for procreation and the view of um, uh, the ongoing nature of humanity ruling this world. And let me say this design of gods is loving, that is, God is concerned for human flourishing. Good, 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 very good. And this part of gendering in marriage is for our good and God desires the very best for us. Now, when it comes to the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite, um, uh, six, over 61% voted in favour of same-sex marriage. and uh, I'm very comfortably in a minority at this point. That is, I'm still uh, confident and comfortable to say that God's design for marriage is actually for our good. And I want to extol how wonderful marriage in God's purposes is and how rich it is and how glorious it is and how it fulfills a whole range of other purposes in God's uh, economy. But I also want to be caring and compassionate for others uh, who for whom the biggest issue is that they don't have a relationship with God and therefore they'll be uh, like people on a life raft without any any oars. You know, they're adrift on a sea without moorings and basis and purpose. Okay. God's design for marriage is good even if our society is moving away. Let me also say, just, just by way of uh, indicating possibilities about the future. I suspect that the definition of marriage is going to keep changing, potentially. Uh, That is, uh, even last year, there were some arguing for same-sex marriage, there were some who were still arguing for male-female marriage, and there were some at the same time who were arguing for polyamory. Uh, That is, particularly for those who are bisexual, they were saying they should be able to be married to two people of different so my guess is there's going to be a push more and more on the definition of marriage that we currently have at the governmental level. Now, at one level, I think it's, it can be harmful to our society to change these definitions in different ways and move away from what God says is good. But at the same time, it seems to me that our task is not primarily to influence law, but to be faithful to God in the framework of our thinking as God's people and how we operate together. Okay, you'll see in the notes uh, I was going to talk about transgender. Jeff Lynn will answer every question you have about that. If you have more immediate questions on that, uh, Mark Curran would be delighted to answer those before he preaches next week his first sermon. That would be wonderful. He'd look forward to that. Let me move on to gender fluidity and I, I've the the suspension of identity. I think many Parents, particularly in our midst, have been quite uh, worried about some of the education programs being introduced to school uh, that has promoted gender fluidity. Uh, We've seen some of the debate around the Gillette ad that was recently uh, put forward about the fact that uh, to identify as a male is to identify as toxic, you know, the equivalent there. I think the ad itself actually promotes some health in relationships, don't get me wrong, but it's part of that debate about identity and gender. Uh, there are some academics who are now arguing that the way forward for the liberation of the human race is to get rid of gender categories entirely. Uh, let, me, let me recite something from Judith Lorber. Uh, she's someone who thinks gender dis- distinctives need to be gotten rid of. Uh, and she's a credentialed person. Right? This is not just out there somewhere. She says, when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the colour of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens there'll no longer be any need for gender at all. And this is, as I say, not a freaky left-wing view. Uh, We've currently got some political parties in Australia who are arguing that uh, on legal documents we should get rid of uh, gender, particularly on birth certificates. Uh, That should be done away with. Now, I'm not raising that to scare you or to engender your political sport for, for any party, Right? That's not the goal of raising it. What I'm trying to do is to say that this highlights some of the the issues that we're grappling with when it comes to gender thinking. Uh, these are issues sweeping our culture. So let me give you some brief thoughts on it before I, I just wrap up. The first thought I have is when it comes to that whole question of gender fluidity and confusion around gender... Uh, I think we should, first of all, not be surprised and have empathy. There's, it doesn't surprise us as uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to think that people will struggle for identity and clarity about who they are if they don't have a relationship with God. I mean, there, there, there's a lostness about that quest, and it's natural to search within or to, to work out where you're searching if you don't have a relationship with God. That should give us compassion for those who are wrestling with these issues of sexual identity. It also, I think, highlights one of the things that Christians have been uh, bad at. What we've tended to do is to introduce our own cultural ideas of what it means to be male or female in a stereotypical way, which has not reflected the Bible. It's just been the way in which we've done it. And to have that highlighted uh, for us in ways that have been inappropriate or demeaning or unfair, I think is totally appropriate when it comes to this issue. Third point is this. Bear in mind this question around gender and identity and confusion or fluidity it resulted from a change in focus in our culture. And I'm talking particularly about the the biology and what I might loosely describe as the psychology of gender. 30 years ago, um, the concept of gender was dominantly established by biology. And the biology even today, in most cases, is totally clear in terms of whether you're male or female. I'm not saying that there weren't, therefore, issues in grappling with that over the last 20 or 30 years. I'm just saying there's a shift so that now, in our world of authenticity and individuality, how I self-identify rides over and above the question of my biological identity. So if I identify as a male or female, even if that doesn't match my biology, this is what should rule. Now, I've got sympathy with that confusion, as I said before. But I just want to alert you to the fact that there's been a movement in thinking, a change in in the approach to things uh, that doesn't actually uh, match with the Bible, but certainly explains people's struggles. it also betrays a failure to understand the way God has made us. That is, in our world, uh, people say, yeah, well, there's body, there's mind, there's, you know, we're just three different things. And so the mind or the, the heart uh, overrules the biology. In God's scheme of things, they all go together. That is, they're meant to be integrated. In a fallen world, they won't be perfectly integrated, but that's the intention. Okay? So there's been a movement on that front. However, having said those things, God is the creator God and he has authority over those whom he've created. Um, we essentially do not have freedom to recreate ourselves. It's actually not in our... It's above our pay grade. You know what I mean? God is the one who actually has the authority to do that. We don't have freedom to create our identity And we'll only have true identity when we have right relationship with God. Our task, uh, as I said, with that analogy from John Wyatt, is to recreate, uh, that is to recover, to be restored in the image that God intended us to have. And I want to suggest that the idea of freedom to choose your gender is not freedom at all. I think it is bondage. God is good. Gender is a part of his good creation, bearing in mind the comments I made about the fall. And part of it is to understand how he has made us and to live in line with that. Let me just finish with a, a couple of closing comments. Um, uh, I think Christians get quite confused in this issue as they deal with thinking about how we operate as a Christian community and how we interface with the world. If you go to 1 Corinthians 5, it is really helpful to read that. It talks about a sexual sin within the church and says, for God's people, uh, let's stick with what God says and have an expectation that we'll live under the authority of what God says. It has some sort of um, comments about living in the world where there's sexual immorality in the world. And it says... I'm not saying to you that you should operate this way, the way you do in the church and the world. If you're in the world, to get away from sexual sin, you'd have to live the world, not an option, right? That is, you think differently about uh, the way in which the world operates. Um, You affirm in your own Christian convictions knowing that the world will be different. Now, at that point, I think what we're being asked to do is just to be living exactly the way Jesus lives, when he deals with people and their sin? In John chapter 4, you may recall, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. Now, this is a woman who really has um, sexually got a confused background and identity-wise is all over the shop. She's had a number of husbands and the, the man she's now living with is not her husband. Now, this is Jesus who encounters this woman. Jesus has absolute clarity about God's intention for gender, for marriage, and for relationships. Jesus is quite clever at this point. He knows what he's doing, he, he knows what the Bible says. But remember how he deals with her? Even with absolute clarity on marriage and that this woman is totally outside of it, he has extraordinary compassion on her. He loves her. He doesn't shame her, he doesn't ridicule her. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't demean her in any way. Clarity about marriage, but extraordinary compassion for this woman. And it seems to me that's, that's our call as his people, to have absolute clarity about God's intention for us in our relationship with him, not just in this area, but every area, and wonderful compassion for those who aren't yet in a relationship with God and who need that if they're to work out how in which they should live to serve him, okay? Clarity about what the Bible says. Keep wrestling with that. Compassion as we engage in a world that lacks clarity because they lack relationship with God, okay? Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a wonderful God he was so kind and merciful and gracious to us. And Father, we, we pray that in this area that you'll help us to recognise the wind and ways of cultural movement, and to be astute to those, and yet to be faithful as we interact with your word, thinking through the implications of it uh, for the world in which we live and for our own lives. And Father, we pray you'll give us enormous thankfulness to you, the good God who's made us to live in relationship with Himself and with one another in your world and that you'll give us uh, great compassion as we care for people around us who are lost and wandering like sheep without a shepherd searching for identity and purpose. Uh, Father, help shape our minds and hearts help us to be your representatives in the world that you've made. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.